Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, reaction as a B.C. judge rules extradition proceedings for Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou should proceed. Canada has an independent judicial system uh, that functions without uh, interference or, or uh, uh, override by politicians. It is one of the things that is deeply dear to Canadians in our system uh, to keep it uh, strong and, uh, and to assure the division of powers within our democracy. China doesn't work quite the same way and don't ha- seem to understand that we do have an independent judiciary from political uh, intervention. Pressure on the government to respond to a scathing report on some of Canada's long-term care homes. I don't even know the right words for it. Like the, the, the horrific details of what the military outlined when it comes to seniors, it's appalling. But what's more appalling is when the federal government, when the prime minister tries to use jurisdiction as an excuse not to act. Like how dare the prime minister respond to a question about whether or not we can show federal leadership by quoting jurisdiction. And the latest polls show Peter McKay still leads the conservative leadership race. If this poll is accurate, then it is gonna be a pretty tight race come August. It's Thursday, May 28th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for joining us. Morning, Mark. What does this ruling about Meng Wanzhou mean for Canada's relationship with China? Well, the Global Times, which is a kind of mouthpiece for the Communist, English-language mouthpiece for the Communist Party, said that... uh, Canada-China relations would would uh, deteriorate to the worst ever as a result of this decision. Um, but frankly, they were pretty bad anyway. I mean, the, the Canadian government describes it in its own memo as it being at the lowest ebb in the 50 years that we've had di- diplomatic relations. Pierre Trudeau established diplomatic relations in October 1970, so we're coming on the 50th anniversary. And there really is no relationship. I mean, all the high-level dialogue that was going on uh, diplomatically has stopped. In 2016, the government sent 13 ministers to China. Now, clearly, there are none going right now. We have citizens detained. We have export industries being arbitrarily curtailed, like canola, down about 30% of of what it was before, because the two biggest producers have have had their export permits revoked. So really, you know, there's not much of a relationship going forward. And I think that what relationship there is, that that Canada should take a long, hard look at it. For example, we are um, party to the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. We've we've invested $256 million in this project. And yet it is essentially designed to boost China's national rejuvenation. It provides loans that, uh, that Western institutions would not provide. You know, China gets the benefit of that. Canada is is helping with that, and I don't think it should be. What does this mean for the two Canadians detained in China, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor? Uh, does this is is this bad news for them? I think it's evidently bad news for them. I think that the the, the people who really lost yesterday were Kovrig and Spavor because I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I mean. It's not clear that there would have been reciprocity anyway. You know, the Chinese deny that they were taken as a result of Meng being detained in 
early December 2018, but they were detained a matter of days later. Uh, pretty coincidental. So um, I think that it's pretty clear that their harsh treatment, which, you know, they're held in solitary confinement while she swans between two multi-million dollar mansions in Vancouver, it's not comparable at all. And uh, I think that, that things have... The situation is just darkened for them, and I think that all Canadians should have them in their thoughts. I know that this is evidence that Canada's judicial system is independent. Uh, The Chinese government, of course, and the Chinese embassy in Ottawa denounced the decision and criticized the government for it, but it wasn't the government's decision. What would the Canadian government have been hoping for yesterday? Would this have been the outcome they wanted, or would they have preferred uh, an end to this ordeal? No, I think that they would have preferred for her to be handed her passport back. You know, and then if she had been released and returned to China, then there was the prospect for, you know, some kind of renewal of the relationship and hopefully the the release of the the two detainees and clemency for the other Canadian who's on death row. You know, that's not how our system works. You know, the the, the, the Global Times and, and by definition the Chinese government were saying that Canada had, had uh, surrendered its judicial and diplomatic independence to to U.S. bullying. Well, that's not how it works. They just don't understand that because they live in a country where lies are presented as truth and there is no judicial independence. And yet, you know, I think that the system has shown itself to be robust. You know, one of the noblest of liberal traditions, judicial independence, has been upheld. Uh, The Justice Heather Holmes was not bullied by the U.S. into making her decision. She administered justice without respect to political pressure. You know, whether there was, you know, Meng held a victory lap photo shoot last Saturday outside the Supreme Court holding up V signs, victory signs, and the Chinese media was reporting ahead of the decision that um, she was going to be released. It just shows how alien the concept of, of a judge making a decision based on the evidence before them is to people in the People's Republic. Going forward, what do you think this means for Canada and China? What You describe the relationship perhaps at a, as being at an all-time low. Uh, what does that mean for, for Canada? Well, I think that, that the Prime Minister has equivocated on China, and I think he's been justifiably criticised as being too soft. You know, And you can argue, well, we had to do this because we have two detainees, we're trying to get them out. And that is that argument goes so far, but it's clear that... China is a bully, and that kowtowing to the bully is not working. And that only standing up to the bully works. And I think that Trudeau has, is conflated in this in this relationship. He was taken to, to China at an early age by his father with his brothers, and you know the father told them that um, outsiders simply cannot know what is best for China or how it needs to travel down its chosen path. He has this respect for China and. Uh, maybe a warmth towards China that is no longer warranted. I mean, things have changed. Xi Jinping has has got a, a, it seems, an expansionist view of China's national rejuvenation. And all of its values are completely at odds with the values that Canada holds dear. And I don't think that you can uh, flirt with that regime. I think that that the only way that it can be be dealt with is by standing up to it and, and... limiting your exposure to it. And in that, in Canada's case, 
The first two steps would be blocking Huawei's involvement in Canada's 5G network and withdrawing from this Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. All right, let's turn to the state of long-term care facilities and seniors' residences in Canada. The spotlight obviously was shone this week on on the situation in Ontario in particular in on five homes that the provincial government has now seized control of in the Toronto area. But there are federal politicians who are saying there needs to be a national strategy on this, uh, some federal attention on this. Do you think the federal government is going to act on this crisis? I don't think there's any role for the federal government here. I mean, this is a provincial area of jurisdiction. It clearly needs swift action and, and quite possibly a public inquiry. I mean, the ownership structures of the worst homes, they were all for profit. I mean, there is a mix of for profit and municipally owned and, and uh, uh, not for profit. And yet it seems that the worst cases were for profit. So it seems some kind of move on the ownership structure of long-term care homes is inevitable. But I don't see a, a role for the federal government here. I mean, national standards and national strategy, it's, it sounds popular and populist, but, you know, this is a, a, a health issue and it's really a provincial issue to solve. Let's talk about the Conservative leadership race. There are polls that show that Peter McKay is still ahead of Aaron O'Toole, but doesn't have enough support necessarily to win on the first ballot. What's your sense of where things stand as we head into the final phase of this race? Uh, very soon people will be able to send in their mail-in ballots and and we'll have an outcome in late August, presumably. But what's your sense of, after everything that's happened, where things stand right now? My my sense is really of antipathy. I mean, it really is a dull, dull race. Um, McKay is winning it almost in spite of himself. He put out a, a, a jobs package the other day, which was pretty much a retread of a whole bunch of old ideas, uh, none of them particularly exciting. Some of them were worthy, you know, uh, trying to push through some kind of strategy on interprovincial trade long overdue, and many people have tried it. It should, probably should be tried again. But there was, not, there was simply a basic lack of understanding about the crisis that we're facing. I mean, this, the, the jobs crisis we're in is centred on the service industry and it's centred on women who, are the, the, who have been worst hit by this, you know, particularly women in low-paying low jobs. There was nothing really in there to cover that. You know, I mean, there was no childcare proposals. There was no suggestion of how we're going to reinvigorate service industries like the restaurant industry, for example. This, this jobs program could have been drawn up at just about any time and didn't really seem to take cognizance of this particular circumstance we're in. So I'm not, I have not been impressed with uh, with McKay's campaign at all. And yet this uh, Main Street poll suggests that uh, 45% of decided respondents are going to vote for him compared to 36% for Erin O'Toole, 11% for Leslie Lewis, and 7.4% for, for Derek Sloan. Where it gets interesting is on second ballot. Um, you know, I did kind of some back-of-the-envelope calculations. Uh, it suggests that um, O'Toole holds a five-point lead over McKay on second-choice options, winning the backing of 40, nearly 40% of Lewis's backers and nearly 20% of Sloan supporters. When you add all that together, if you had a turnout somewhere similar to the 144, 150,000 who voted last time, 
McKay just about squeaks over the line. But O'Toole really makes it interesting. I mean, if this uh, if this poll is accurate, then it is going to be a pretty tight race come come August. And um, it really shouldn't have been. I mean, it should have been uh, McKay's all the way, and he's uh, you know he's got an overwhelming number of MPs backing him, and and more money, and you know this should have been a slam dunk, and it turns out it isn't. All right, John. Great to have your comments today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Have a good day. That's John Iveson of the National Post. China doesn't work quite the same way and don't seem to understand that we do have an independent judiciary from political uh, intervention. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues China must understand our courts don't serve the government. The Star writes, Wednesday's ruling in the Meng Wanzhou case is politically inconvenient. But that's what sometimes happens when courts are independent of political authorities. It's called rule of law, a concept foreign to China's Communist Party and its mouthpieces. It would be a lot easier if Canada's courts would just do whatever made things easiest for the government. But as China must be made to understand, that's simply not how our system works. In McLean's, Jason Markasoff argues, politicized process lives only in China's imagination. Markasoff writes... This past weekend, Meng Wanzhou and her colleagues appeared on the courthouse steps for the bizarrely premature thumbs-up group photograph. The scene stood out as oblivious to the world and how it's changed in the last few months. She and her friends stood shoulder to shoulder, extended thumb to extended thumb, as though the influence of a high-ranking member of China's executive class with the support of a saber-rattling government could thumbs up its way to victory in a democratic, rule-of-law state. In the Globe and Mail... Kristen Hopewell argues Canada must boost its foreign aid to combat a coronavirus humanitarian crisis. Hopewell writes, Developing countries have seen all of their major sources of revenue plummet, and they are far more limited in their ability to cope with economic shocks. Without social safety nets, their populations are suffering severe hardship. As one of the world's richest countries, Canada has a critical role to play in averting a worldwide catastrophe. It has a moral obligation to do so, and helping to combat the pandemic globally and contribute to a safer and healthier world is also in the direct interests of all Canadians. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. A multi-party coalition of MPs will be holding a news conference this morning to denounce what they say is the government's neglect of some crucial women's groups. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Parliament Hill, the women and gender equality critics for the Conservatives, Bloc Québécois, NDP and Green parties will together hold a press conference to draw attention to what they describe as the Trudeau government's neglect of several women's groups who have seen their funding lapse. One of those groups is the London, Ontario Abused Women's Centre, which says its programs help over 600 women and girls who have been victims of human trafficking or forced prostitution. They say their funding wasn't renewed without notice in March. Other groups say they face the same situation. The Conservatives have raised this issue several times in the Commons, and now all of the other parties are joining in. Women's rights and equality activists say this is a particularly bad time for such groups working with exploited and abused women to be left in the lurch because reports are flooding in of an increase in vulnerability and outright abuse of women who are trapped in dangerous, dangerous situations during the COVID-19 shutdown. That media availability is going on in the West Block press conference room on Parliament Hill later this morning.
Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will speak with the President of Guatemala before hosting a call with provincial and territorial premiers. He will then speak at the United Nations high-level event on financing for development in the era of COVID-19 and beyond, followed by a joint news conference with the Secretary-General of the United Nations and the Prime Minister of Jamaica. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, May 28th. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.